morning to you, and um, it's a real privilege to be with you again. Uh, first of all, we'd like to express our many, many thanks to making us so welcome uh, at the Yosemite Conference, and uh, my family uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. My wife thoroughly enjoyed it. She informed me that she will be here next year, and I can come if I want to. So... Uh, <laughs> So uh, thank you, thank you, a thousand thank yous for caring for us and um, loving us and um, being our family. You know, we feel like part of your family is with us. In fact, part of your family married my family, so we're really in. So. But we, would, we just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to begin with prayer this morning. And then I'd like to give you the title of the message today. It is a simple message. It is three points and then three points. So it's three and three. And that'll be all you have to remember. And it will come from the pages of Second Chronicles. So let's pray. Our Father, this morning we come and want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much he is, has done for us, but it's more than that. There's so much that he is doing for us. And Father, there is so much that you will do for us through him. And we look forward to a day, to this day, perhaps it is today, when we will see the eyes of our Savior face to face. And we, in one moment, will know just what it means to have our sins forgiven. For we will be in the presence of God, not in fear, as we are now, not in fear. We enjoy that now, but we will see him face to face without fear and we will know the love of God afresh. Father, thank you again for your son. We do pray that you would bless our time together. We pray that you would give us the wisdom from heaven. We pray that the Spirit of God would do what he does so well and instruct us and illuminate us and move us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this week at uh, Yosemite, it was, a, it was a, one of the first conferences in a long time I got to sit and to listen, and uh, I was really, really thankful for that, and I was really, really convicted about that. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, when you're preparing to, to minister God's Word, you have conviction. I try to approach God's Word that way and write down my convictions, but um, I'll tell you, the Lord used this week in my life in a profound way, so I have to thank those who labored to make it possible. Um, but I have to tell you that um, I don't know how you feel for those that were there, but I feel a little bit like I failed. Anybody ever feel like you failed? No one. That's amazing. Well, I feel like I failed. And in fact, it's not past tense, it's present tense. I feel like I fail. In fact, you could say, I feel like I've blown it. Have you ever felt like that? On our way here, we had a bit of a trial. It wasn't like some of the trials you had coming or leaving from here, but we, we all got to the airport around on Saturday evening because we were going to do an evening flight uh, and um, hopefully get in and everybody be tired. They just go to sleep and then we drive out Sunday uh, to Yosemite. And what happened was the flight got canceled. And uh, there's nothing in my mind worse than traveling than having your flight canceled. You know, heads will roll, right? I oh, can't believe it. Right? It was all weather-related, so, you know, you can't really be mad at the airlines because really they don't do the weather. At least they tell you that. You're kind of mad at God. You ever been upset like that? No, I was, I was trying not to be upset, and, I, you know, I sounded like an Israelite, and I don't mean a good one. I mean the whiny and complainy ones. You know, the ten times in the Old Testament, that's what I sounded like. And I was going on and on to my wife privately because I didn't want the kids to hear, but they could see it. And Janet, she's such a godly Bible. Well, we're just going to have to trust the Lord. Well, that's the problem. So we got our flights changed. We spent five hours at the airport staring at each other, patiently waiting. I thought I did a good job patiently waiting, and I lost it, you know. Go talk to the ticket person, go get to the hotel. And many things happened. We misplaced a credit card, and all this stuff was happening at once. And, and I jammed everybody in the rooms. Okay, go to sleep. <laughs> Little Gracie's going, 
Okay. So we get up at 4 a.m. and we pack it all in. We get to the airport. We get on, air, on the airplane. And of course, you're so hungry at 4 a.m. You could eat your right arm and left toe if you wanted. And so we get in there and we go, we get in and we, we arrive over here. And thanks to Jason, he picks us up and we, we, we have my dad stay at the Western Assembly's home. It's now around 10.30, 10.45, and, and we're going to do this whole thing in one day. And we did. We did. We, I might add we made really good time. But other than that, it was, uh, it was a real hard thing for me. I don't know about you, but that's when I fail most. Things happen. I can't explain them. They make no sense to me. There's no logic that I can find, and yet when I read the Old Testament, there's so many times that logic isn't found. God is asking you to walk by faith, and faith alone, just like my wife said to me that Saturday night. I feel like I failed. I heard the ministry this week, and it talked about the flesh, and I said, I know that flesh all too well. I feel like I failed you, Lord. How many times must I break the heart of God? I heard Nate's ministry this week, and and you should listen to it all. It's very, very good. And Elisha and the opportunities that were missed and and the obscurity and all those points he made. And I said, oh, Lord, I failed. I look back on my work career, and I realized how many years I wasted not, not working, but not being a testimony in the way that I should have been. And I failed. And I guess you could actually make quite a litany, each one of us, of different failures that have occurred in our lives, and, and we would be very profoundly depressed. And yet, I, I haven't found in the Bible that he wants us to stay there. So I'd like you to turn to the book of Second Chronicles. And for a brief moment, I'd like you to look with me, beginning initially in Second Chronicles chapter 17. And when we do so, we're going to look at three areas of Jehoshaphat's life. And when we do so, I want you to see a man that had made a bad decision. He failed, and a consequence occurred from it, and he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saved him. And the reason why I want to point this out is because when we fail, what happens is we kind of think that maybe God is going to be so upset with us, I have to do some time of penance and the batting cage of life until God is not so upset with me, and then I can re-engage with God. That's a really, actually, that's kind of a pagan thought, but that's, that's how we think, that we need to kind of keep our distance from God because we really blew it, and until God kind of simmers down and, and all the dust settles, we'll just stay to ourselves. And that would be the farthest thing from the truth. In fact, what God would have you do when there is absolute failure, when there is, when there is demise or, 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 or injury in your life, what he would have you do is not stay away, but he'd have you draw near. Problem is, we don't think God wants us to draw near. And so, the title of today's message is, So When We Fail, What Do We Do Now? Now, Jehoshaphat has some background, and I want to go over the background, and then I'm going to talk about, these are the three three main points. There was a bad decision, and then there was a, a, a bad situation, and then there was brokenness, which resolves the bad. Bad situation, or bad decision, bad situation, and brokenness. Those are our three main points, and at the very end, I'll give you three more points under the title of brokenness. So if you're taking notes or you need a structure to your thoughts, that should be the structure for today. So let's look at the background of Jehoshaphat first. This is just the information we need to make sense of the story. As you know, Jehoshaphat was, of course, one of the kings of the southern kingdom, which would have been the, been the kingdom of Judah. And, and as he came to power, his father being Asa, uh, Jehoshaphat made strategic decisions. I want you to see these. This is in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Look at verse 3. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former ways of his father, David. Now David was multiple generations before Jehoshaphat. And whenever you see a king or read a king about a king of Judah in the south, 
whenever they make the comparison to David, that means he was a pristine, well, or a godly king. The, 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 the standard of measurement goes to the highest rank. And so Jehoshaphat had this epitaph for him, as, he, as the writer of the Chronicles would tell us. He said, he walked in the ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought, sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments. Now, what does that mean? That means that he made a practice of reading the law every year as required by the law and not according to the acts of Israel. That would have been the northern kingdom. Therefore, God established his kingdom in, this kingdom in his hand, and Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat. And the people were so pleased about the spirituality of the kingdom that Jehoshaphat would re regularly receive gifts and thanks and honor to the king. And it goes like this, and he had riches and honor and abundance, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Now, this is a key thing. Although not only did he follow the historical monarch, as it were, of spirituality, not only did he do that, not only did he know the word of God, but he loved to do those things. Sometimes I think as Christians, we go through the Christian life and we do what we have to do because after all, we are Christians. We're not enthusiastic about it. We wish it wasn't that way. But, you know, this is what Christians do, so I better do it. But, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. I, I, when, when my children obey, I like them to, to be enthusiastic about their obedience. You know, okay, Dad, we'll get right after it. Not, okay. I'll go wash the dishes. You know, delight in the things of God. This is what he did. I think that really pleased the heart of the Lord. This is the background that Jehoshaphat begins, or that we're told about in the beginning of his legacy. It, he took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places. That wasn't usually done. The high places, the places on the mountaintops and the ledges of the cliffs in which pagan idolatry was, uh, was, was erected so that they could have privacy privacy and, and worshiping Baal. And so he removed any aspect that could, people could gravitate to in the quietness of their own solitude. He, he took it away so that there was no recourse but to come to Jerusalem and worship the true Jehovah. This man covered all the bases. What, a, what an individual, I think. He removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. Now, now what he did, if you just flip over a few uh, paragraphs later, it says that uh, the Lord blessed him. He fortified cities and such. And look in verse 10. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, so that they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. You know what that means? That means that God brought peace in Jehoshaphat's regime. They weren't constantly training for battle. He was a king in the midst of enemy territory that was a king of peacetime. That's a great privilege. You're not worried about your survival. You're worried about you're only, you're only able to devote yourself to God. Now, by the way, that's why he tells us to pray for those in authority. And what comes after that command in the New Testament? That you may lead a peaceable and quiet life. Why are you to have a peaceable and quiet life? Because if you're spending your time in survival, then the chances of the gospel going out have a less likelihood. But if you have no resist, if you have a, a, a time where you're not trying to maintain your survival, you have greater energy for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we ask the Lord for those things. And peacetime was, was what, what characterized his regime, so that they did not make war with Jehoshaphat, verse 11. Also, some of the Philistines. When's the last time the Philistines brought anything to the king? Ah, they, they, they brought a sword and a spear the last time we picked up that incident. The Valley of Elah and King David, or David wasn't king then, but the shepherd boy David. Well, some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver as tribute, and the Arabians, a people to the east, brought him flocks and 7,000 herd of ra or 700 rams and 7,700 7, male goats. And Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful, and he built fortresses and stored cities. He had to. He got all this loot. He had, so, he had much property in the cities of Judah, and the men of war, mighty men of valor, were in Jerusalem. He had all of his favorite special forces right there in the capital. This was great. This was fantastic. The Lord had protected. The Lord had provided peacetime. And Jehoshaphat, in this Evidence, this overwhelming evidence of God's provision and God's goodness makes a bad decision. Now, I want you to know that it's possible to make very bad decisions in the midst of great blessing. 
make no mistake, we are not immune to making terrible decisions in the midst of God's overwhelming blessing. The reason why that scenario exists is because it makes us, it's designed to make us cling to the Lord and not cling to his blessings. We want to cling to the blesser and not, the, not just the goodness that he gives. We want to cling to his wisdom, to his knowledge, to his might, to his personhood, and not just relish in all the wonderful things that we've received. I want my child to rejoice in her father, not just in the gifts her father gives her. That's the idea. Now, in this moment, this, this decision, this strategic decision that happened was that there was a marriage that happened. Now, I want you to skip down to chapter 18. And I'm sorry, we have to kind of skip and skim along, but, but it, we're just creating this, this, this outline. And this was the evidence of the bad decision. Let's read it. Verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 1. Now, Jehoshaphat had riches and honor and abundance. Interesting the writer says that right off. Read what happens next. And by marriage, he allied himself with Ahab. Wait, 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 stop. What? Wait, who? Ahab. You mean the guy married to Jezebel? That's the guy. He, he married their family. Yeah. You know who their daughter was? Athaliah. She eventually killed all the grandchildren. She's no good, right? This, this, this alliance with the northern part of Israel in the midst of God's quantiful blessing, you know what we call that? That's a bad decision, a terrible decision. Now, why did he do that? There's speculation why. Perhaps the most logical reason was north of Israel, north of the kingdom of Israel, was the nation of Syria, uh, the Armians, Armians, and they, they always made war with the northern kingdom of Israel. And they would try to come in and make raids. That's why we have those uh, portions in 2 Kings 6 and 7. And they would come and make raids. And, and the idea is they wanted to take over the northern kingdom of Israel, that is the top, northern ten nations, and eventually encroach on the southern kingdom. And so perhaps the most logical reason that Jehoshaphat made this alliance to have the two politically aligned by the kids marrying each other was simply a move of strategy and corporate, that is, national security. In the front end, it sounded so good. It sounded so logical. It seemed to make intuitive sense. It seemed to have all the promise of a really, really wise king who was thinking the wrong way. He made a bad decision. Do you ever do that? You, 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 you work it out in your head, and, and you, you go through the process, and you, you, you ponder it, and you, you make all these calculations, and, and you, you get it all down, and you, and you say, okay, this is what we'll do. This seems like a why. This seems strategically sound. You make this decision, and it was the wrong thing. Many times in my life I've done that. And I, I usually recognize, excuse me, I don't usually recognize it, but I have learned that my wife is a great barometer of these kinds of things. She is one that helps me see when my logic is really terribly wrong, and it was a bad decision. Now, in years past, I've told this story, but I, I, I don't think, you, I, I would doubt if you remember it, but there was a time in my life that I, I have, and I still do, dream of being a, a carpenter. I admire the McKay's company that can do this. I can't do any of that. You know? and, and I wanted to build things, you know. I can sew your arm on, but I just wanted to hang a sheet of drywall. That's all I wanted to do, you know. And so we, we had a basement. It was relatively large. And I, I went to my wife one day, and I said, I think I'd like to finish the basement. I think I can do it. Now, you know, she's a very wise woman. And she goes, you think? Now, men, when your wife says, you think, it's a rhetorical question. It does not need to be answered. It needs to be pondered. I answered, yes, I do. Wrong answer. And so she says, very wisely, she says, now, Steve, why don't you pray about it, and I'll pray about it, and we'll come back together in one week, and, we see, and let's just see if God's leading, us to, uh, leading you to build, uh, finish the basement. I said, so, you know, of course, I prayed about it this many times, and I come back to her the next week, and she goes, well, how, how, do you think, how do you think the Lord's leading you about the basement? He wants me to do it, no problem. 
kid, the godliest person, go, okay, okay, well, if you feel the Lord wants you to finish the basement, well, you, you go ahead. I'm two weeks into the project. I've got crooked nails and skinned up knuckles, and I've got a half a wall roughed in. Two weeks! Can you believe that? It wasn't even straight. And I go to her, I go, honey, I think I made a bad decision. <laughs> she is so, it's like, she's so like the Lord. She goes, no, I thought that the Lord might be redirecting you. So I've, I've taken the liberty to find a few contractors. <laughs> and I've, um, I've, I, I, I just happened to have their phone numbers right here. <laughs> Bad decisions, right? And I felt so confident. You know what? I was confident in myself. I was confident in my flesh. I was confident in my own, uh, my own disillusioned abilities. I was confident in everything that was wrong. I made a bad decision. I made a terrible decision. And I went forward in it. And you know, we're going to do that. And you're going to do that. And if you haven't done it, you will do that. And you'll do that as a single person, and you'll do that as a married person. And you know what? It's not going to go well. And in this case, that's what happened. Now, don't feel that, that, that God is pulling a fast one on you. All right? All this, is, all this is in the masterful, sovereign hand of God where he uses these situations, and he actually makes them for good. And that's the, what this story illustrates. He makes it all for good. And yet it was born out of a terrible logic, wasn't it? Well... I can't read all of chapter 18. I have to summarize it for you. And the summary is, is really interesting. And by the way, in chapter 18, you will see some of the inner workings of the unseen world more than anywhere else in the Bible. It's very, very interesting. But this is how it goes down. So they get married, and, and so the in-laws decide to get together. And so uh, Jehoshaphat and his entourage goes up to the north to Samaria, and they are going to visit with Jeze, that's Jezebel, and Ahab. And they're having a grand old time. And while they're there, Ahab shows them his army. Hey, what do you think about this firepower? You know, what do you think? And Jehoshaphat goes, ooh, really nice. It was not only a, uh, not only a display of his firepower, but also to basically say, I got your back, my friend. I got your back. And if Syria's coming, we can, we're, we're on it. And so Jehoshaphat, showing his reaction, uh, he, he says, well, yeah, okay, that's really good. So Ahab then says, and you, you might be able to read it here, he says, uh, verse 3, so Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, hey, see my great army, would you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? It's a, that was a village, it was a town nearby, and, and the Syrians had control of it, and Ahab wanted it, you know, and Ahab wanted a lot of things, and he tried to generally get them. And so, you know, they're in-laws, and he, I mean, after all, he showed them all his firepower, the kind of firepower that would watch his back if the Syrians invaded. I mean, Jehoshaphat said, well, um, 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 yeah, 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 we'll go, we'll go. I got my folks, you got your folks, yeah, let's go. And then Jehoshaphat says this. Now, I want you to read it with me in verse 4. He says, uh, please inquire for the, uh, for the word of the Lord today, right? Inquire. From the Lord. Now, the last time Ahab inquired of the Lord was never. He never inquired of the Lord. He had prophets, don't get me wrong. He inquired, but never from the Lord, always from those who are around him. And so, so uh, what happens is he asks for a prophet of the Lord. He says, oh, we got prophets. And he brings a lot of these guys in, and they all say, oh, king, go to Ramoth Gilead. You're going to win. One guy shows up with these horns and says, you're going to gore them with these horns. You're going to win. You should go. And finally, finally Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat said, well, is, is there not still a prophet, look in verse 6, of the Lord here? And so the king of Israel, that's Ahab, he goes, well, yeah, there is, you know, he's kind of a crusty old guy. I don't really like him, you know what I'm saying? His name is Micaiah, and every time I ask him a question, he's always saying nasty things about me, so I don't, you know, we don't really use him around here. He likes to pick his revelation, doesn't he? And so what happens is, is that Jehoshaphat says, well, let's ask him. He says, nah, okay, I don't really like you. You shouldn't say that about the Lord. So they call Micaiah. Now, Micaiah comes in. This is really classic. You, you can read it in the, in the text. It says, bring him here, and, and they brought him, and, and uh, uh, 
Uh, let's see, it says up there, uh, verse 12. Now the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah uh, spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets are with one accord to encourage the king, so please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, in other words, as true as God is alive, I'm going to say whatever God tells me to say. That's what a prophet does. And when they came to the king, the king said to Micaiah, he said, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And he said, now this is sarcastic, okay, this is very sarcastic, it goes like this. Go, prosper, they'll be delivered to your hand. Because he's being sarcastic, right? And so then the king, that's Ahab, says, how many times I told you that you and make you swear that you tell me the truth? I think that was for show. But the, but but the truth, and then you should tell me the truth in the name of the Lord. I you should tell me. So in other words, Micaiah was being sarcastically and uh, and sarcastic in his response. Go, you'll win. All right, whatever. And so King Ahab shows in kind of a, a, a displays in sort of a showy way to King Jehoshaphat because after all, Jehoshaphat is an honorable man and loves the Lord. See, I told you, you need to tell the truth. You need to tell us what God says. Ahab didn't care about that. He didn't care at all. So Micaiah says, well, let me tell you what God really said. He had this tribunal. He had this council. And the sons of, men, or the sons of God, were there. That's, that's, a, that's a phrase talking about angelic hosts. And that includes both those who were, those who were righteous, the elect angels, and those who had fallen. That's, that's the indication here. And as they talked, God posed a question. He said, how shall, we, how shall we convince Ahab to go to Ramoth Gilead that he may die? Right? Can you imagine all this going on in the background? And Ahab hears the story beforehand, and, and, and different ones have different ideas. And, and finally, a, a deceiving spirit, that would be of a fallen deceiving spirit, says, well, I, I got an idea. Can you imagine? This is, this is incredible to be able to watch this. I got an idea. I'll go and I'll send a lying spirit on all the prophets to tell him to go so he'll be convinced it's safe. And so Micaiah tells him this. Well, one of, one of, one of uh, Ahab's right-hand man comes up and smacks him in the face, right? Micaiah says, listen, you're, 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 that's not going to go well for you either. And so Jehoshaphat hears this whole thing. You ever think, man, Jehoshaphat, maybe you ought to back out of this. Maybe you ought to not go. But he goes anyway. We call that a bad decision. And he goes anyway, he goes into the battle, and you know how the battle goes. It, 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 Ahab says to the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, hey, I, I got an idea. Why, why, don't, why don't you put on my armor and I'll put on your armor, right? That's the third bad decision. This is a bad day. And he says, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll think I'm you and you me, and it'll be better. Better for who? Better for Ahab. Jehoshaphat goes along. Joe, what are you thinking? And so Joe, Jehoshaphat, he goes out to battle. And guess what? The whole army was told, you see King Ahab? That's your number one target. Take him out. And that's what they do. And there's Jehoshaphat. He's in the chariot. And all of a sudden, the whole army's coming on him. And you know what he does? Now, turn your hearing aids down. He goes like this. Ah! Right? That's what he does. And he cries out to the Lord. Now, you can, I'll, let me read it to you. I'll turn over to the end of the chapter, and I'll begin reading with you. Let's begin reading, yeah, verse 30. And so the king of Syria had commanded the captains of the chariots who were with him, saying, fight with, with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. Just go after the main guy. And so it was, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, it is the king of Israel, because he was dressed in the king's clothes, Ahab's clothes. And they therefore surrounded him to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out in this moment of bad decision. Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. I want you to see that. I want you to see that although he had been blessed by God, although he had made a bad decision, when he cries out for help, God answers. And that can be for you and I. Because when you feel like you failed, God doesn't fail you. He's faithful. He cried out for help, and, and, and God diverted them from him. And so it was. When the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Jehoshaphat came this close to being dead. And God intervened for him in a bad decision. 
Well, it turns out that a, a, a no-name archer pulls back his bow, shoots an arrow sort of randomly, and actually strikes the real king who was dressed in Jehoshaphat's clothes. And by the end of the day, Ahab is dead. Jehoshaphat, the battle's over. Jehoshaphat returns. By the way, Ramoth Gilead wasn't taken. And, and, and Jehoshaphat goes all the way back south. Can you imagine that, that, that little in-law greeting? That was one you'll never forget. Bad decisions, multiple bad decisions. So the, he gets down back to home. Look at verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And here's where we begin to see or the end of his bad decision. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went to meet him. In other words, God wants to have a word with you, King Jehoshaphat. And said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate Jehovah? Can you imagine how penetrating that was? Shoo! That was Jehoshaphat's arrow. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. You see, you made a bad decision, and there's consequences for that, and you should know that, and God's wrath is he's not happy with you, Jehoshaphat. You made some decisions here and which were contrary to the heart and person of God whom you say you serve and love, and you know what? He's upset with you. Now, the rest of chapter 19 is sort of a parenthesis. It talks about all that Jehoshaphat did and the fortifications. Maybe it was in response to this statement, maybe not. But when you get to chapter 20, I want you to read this line with me, verse 1. And it says this, and it happened after this. The word this is referring to the conversation with the seer in, in the first part of chapter 19. After he was told that he made a bad decision and these were the consequences of it, Something else happens. In other words, this next event might be construed as the wrath of God. In other words, this bad decision led to a bad situation. A bad situation. Now, what was the situation? Here it is. It says in verse, uh, verse 1, uh, the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them. Later we find out they're the uh, people from Mount Seir, which would be the Edomites. So if you know your biblical geography, or if you don't, I'll describe it to you. But the people that are uh, east of the Dead Sea, uh, from the northern tip of the Dead Sea, all the way south, uh, past the tip of the Dead Sea, that would be the Ammonites, that's current-day Jordan. That would be the Moabites, which is also Jordan today. And they, they had that red area, the mountains were red on that part of the Dead Sea, in the center part of the Dead Sea. And south of that, they had the Edomites, who were uh, descendants of Esau. All those guys got together. Now, some bib, uh, biblical archaeologists feel that there was a little land bridge that crossed the Dead Sea, and they came across the Dead Sea, and they decided to go up uh, and fight and attack um, uh, King Jehoshaphat in his capital, which was Jerusalem. They gathered at a place called En Gedi. En Gedi is the only, is, is, yeah, the only main oasis in that desert on that part of the Dead Sea. When and if you go to Israel sometime with me, um, we, we'll go to En Gedi. And En Gedi's famous. There's so many things that happen in, at En Gedi, including David's life. But here, this fantastic event happened. They go to En Gedi. It's beautiful. It's a spring. We, we hike up in there. There's waterfalls. There's the caves where David was at. And, and you, you go up into this little crevasse, and you're hiking up. And what you do is you, you follow that all the way in. You eventually get to Jerusalem, to the central ridge, a mountain spine of the country, and you go northward, and boom, you're at Jerusalem. It's an easy go. It's an easy, it's, I wouldn't say it's an easy hike, but it's, a, it's access for an army. And that's where they go. And Jehoshaphat's told about it. Now, remember the story. We have a bad decision, which led to a bad situation, and it seems as if there was a natural consequence. What do you do when you feel like you failed? What you do is you do what Jehoshaphat did. Now, let's read it. In verse 1, and it happened after this, the people of Ammon and the Ammonites and others came, and they were to battle against Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, then some came to Jehoshaphat, saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, that's the Dead Sea, from Syria, and they are from Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set, him, and, and set himself to seek the Lord. Set himself to seek the Lord. Now, I skipped a verse in chapter 19. I want you to look at the very end of verse 3. After he was rebuked by the uh, Hanani, the seer, look at what it says. He says, uh, you have prepared your heart to seek God. 
Jehoshaphat, your behavior with Ahab is incongruous, does not match up to your heart that sought God. I want you to seek God again. That's the implication. So now the situation erupts, which is most likely because of a bad decision. He has a bad situation. And in that moment, when you think God would distance himself from you, when you think he's really mad at you and doesn't want anything to do with you, Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord. What do you do when you feel like you failed? Don't run away. Run too. Don't try to distance. Draw near. Don't try to, to, to separate. Don't try to isolate. But why don't you find yourself peace on the lap of God in heaven with your head resting against his chest? Now, over the years, I've found this to be really amazing to me. It's amazing to me because of what I've seen in my kids and, and how God acts to me. When my children have done something and, and it's been hard and we've had to work through it, maybe there was some discipline involved and, and we come together. You know where that child wants to sit? Do you know where that child wants to be the most? On my lap, on my arms, with her head on my chest. How come we don't do how come we don't look for that comfort and draw near? I saw that over and over and over, and I said, Lord, I don't act like that to you. When, when, when there's moments of chastening, I, I want to get away from you. I, I don't think you want to talk to me. And you're saying you so want to talk to me. And I'm telling you today, brothers and sisters, that when you feel like you failed, the place God wants you is right on his throne, right on his knee. So you can bury your head on his, in his chest and just be at peace. And this is what Jehoshaphat did. In a bad situation, he clings to his God. Are you? Are you doing that? Most of us feel that if the boss is upset with me, I need to keep my distance till the boss simmers down. And we take that mentality and we apply it to our God in heaven. And you know what we do? We dishonor him even more. I don't think that's how God wants us to be. Now let's read about this bad situation that happened. Uh, uh, they gathered together. Oh, he sought the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout Judah. And so Judah gathered to ask help from the Lord. And from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. This is the leadership of Jehoshaphat. Now what you're going to see next is what happens when a bad decision that leads to a bad situation, now you're going to see brokenness, which resolves both. Brokenness. You want to know how you reach the heart of God after you failed? You want to know what moves the heavens above for, for, for in, a, in, the, in the moment of your failure and distress? It's brokenness. Brokenness moves God's heart like in no other way Brokenness reaches the corridors of heaven. Brokenness, if I may say it this way, brings tears to the heart of God. Now listen to this, listen to this. Then verse 5, Jehoshaphat set, stood in the assembly of Judah and in Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court. You know what he's saying? I'm, where, I'm in the place where God dwells. That's significant. Oh, listen to his prayer. One of the famous prayers in the Bible. Oh, Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not just, I want you just to think of us standing in the court. And the echo in this room is great. Just, just all of us are there. We've fasted. We've prayed. We're, we're recognized that we've got a big problem on our hands. Uh, the king has made a decision. We're all paying for it. And what do we do? We're going to draw near. And I want you to just imagine this speech, just this prayer. Not a speech, but this prayer. You're praying with the king, right? Here it is. Oh, Lord God of our fathers. Are you not God in heavens? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the, earth, of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Do you hear how he calls upon the mightiness of God? He could easily be self-absorbed in everything he did wrong, but he calls on God's greatness. Are you not our God? You know what he's saying? Now he switches. He's saying... Not only are you so great, but you're ours, and we're yours. And I, I don't have anything to say except that's the truth. 
He says, are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? See how he reminds God of his commitments. And they dwell in it and and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, and he reminds them, see, he's covered multiple centuries of history. You were the friend of Abraham. You've promised this land. Here we are. And now we're in this place that you said, and he references back to 1 Kings 6, and he says, says, do you remember that? When when Solomon prayed that if we turn to this place and pray, you would hear? He's referencing that. He alludes to it. He says, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. Can you hear that? Now, what do you do? What does brokenness look like? Brokenness looks like this. I remember who you are. I remember what you've done, and I remember what you've promised. And I'm going to cling to what you've promised me. And you promised that day when Solomon offered up all those sacrifices and fire came from heaven and consumed the sacrifice when we dedicated the temple. I remember that that was the word of the Lord and that word is what I count on. Oh God, we have made a mess. We have sinned. We have, we have made bad decisions that's created bad circumstances and we need your, we in our brokenness ask you to take care of our problems. Do you ever do that? Do you ever feel like you sinned and man, there's no way that this is going to be a long time before we can solve this one. I just want to encourage you, you just cling to the heart of God. You cling to his word. You cling to the word that says if you confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that means immediate, not in 10 days. That means right now. That means you draw near. And what does God say in the book of James? I will draw near to you. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Yes, humble yourself like King Jehoshaphat. Yes, let the power uh, of his conviction grip you. But you, in that moment of being gripped, you grab hold of me. You put, you sit on my lap and you bury your head in my chest and I guarantee I'll listen to you because there's one thing that I love most. It's brokenness. It's brokenness. You can trust me. Isn't that precious? That's how God thinks. Well, let's read on. He says this. He says, uh, let's see, I was down in verse uh, 10. And now here are the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade. He says, you remember that? You didn't let us attack them when we came out. He's citing several centuries history now. And we didn't attack them. Now they're come to attack us. Oh, God, verse 12, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming out against us. We are sitting ducks. It's a loose translation. Uh, Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Do you see that? Do you see how you handle bad decisions that create bad situations and how brokenness and clinging to his word, and that's really, the, that's really the, what God is, is, is saying to you. You cling to my word. Brokenness, you have faith in my word, in my person. Even the circumstances were caused by your own fingertips. You just hold on to me. My word will be true. I can be trusted. That's the, that's the first point under brokenness. What's the second point? This is the second point. Your problems are my problems. That's what God's saying. And so the seer comes again, or the, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. I'll, I'll read a section of it here. It says in verse uh, 15, Listen, all you people of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat, the one who made the decision, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid. Your problems are my problems. Do not be afraid dismayed, or dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Don't you love that? Can you imagine? We're all in the court, and we're, we're crying out, and the king is praying this, and all of a sudden, Jehaziel says, you should know something. This is the word of the Lord. My problems are your problems are my problems, and you will see that this is God's battle, not your battle. This is what happens under brokenness. Three things under brokenness. Number one, in brokenness, you cling to the word of the Lord. Number two, my problems become his problems. I just love that about God, don't you? My sin became his sin, and he who knew no sin became sin for me. 
I, 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 was, I was so rescued. And if that's the theme of the cross, then that's the theme for the Christian life. And so many times we got these doubts about this, uh, the, the love of God, and we have these doubts about the certainty of God. We have these doubts about God's willingness to endure with us. And the truth is he loves to endure with us. The thing that captures his attention most is a broken and contrite heart that clings to his word. Oh, Christian, that's the kind of thing we need to have. So... And the third thing is that he solves your problem. He says, of course, you're, you're, you trust brokenness, trust in his word, brokenness, my problem, or your problems are my problems. And finally, the number three is I solve your problems. You know how this happens? It's a beautiful story. Many of you know it, of course. He, he says, you do not need to fight. You're going to see the Lord fight. And so Jehoshaphat, look at verse 18. He bows his head to the ground, and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Israel bow before the Lord and worshiping God. You hear that? Prostrating themselves and honoring God, and, not, and yet the, the enemy is still alive. The enemy is just over that little ascent of Ziz. They're within earshot. They, Jehoshaphat... Positions. This is a man of faith. He positions the singers, the Kohathites. When you like to be with that family, you go first. You, know? you get in the front of the battle. He puts them in the front, and they start singing. Now look at what happens. They rose early in the morning. They went out to Tekoa. They, they sang this song. You, you, you got a little uh, snippet of the song in, in verse, uh, uh, what verse is that? I can't see it, 21, 22. Praise the Lord for his mercy, his said endures forever. And notice verse 22. And now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes. Huh? Who, who was doing the ambush? wasn't the army of, of Judah because they were behind the singers. Who was doing the ambushes? I think they were angelic hosts. I think they were angelic hosts. Had to be. And they would, they would so get the enemy turned around and disoriented that they began to think that the guy that was attacking them was their fellow soldier, maybe a Moabite, and they'd turn and fight that Moabite, and they ended up killing each other. Let me tell you something. Brokenness breeds the following. It breeds faith in God's word and you trust his character. Number two, my problem, your problems become my problems. And number three, your problems are solved. Why is that? Because God does not despise a broken heart. He loves the broken heart. Psalm 34 and Psalm 51, it says this, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are not all the, in the, wrapped up in the burnt offerings. Not wrapped up. in a burnt offering was a holy consumed offering. But it's not wrapped up. Those are not the things that I love most. Let me tell you what I love most. I love most the broken and contrite in heart. You give me that. No matter the circumstances, no matter the equation, no matter how you got there, I answer you. Turn to Psalm 34. I'll close with this. I want, you to, I want you to remember this on your way out today. Psalm 34, verse 17. Verse 17. I want, I want this to ring in your ears as you leave today. Psalm 34, verse 17. I'll read it. I'll read it very slowly and with purpose. The righteous cry out. That's what Jehoshaphat did. And the Lord hears. That's what the Lord did. And delivers them out of all their troubles. Our brother this morning mentioned the word all. All their troubles. You mean the ones that I caused? Yes. The ones I didn't cause? Yes. And anything in the middle. And notice this. And the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves as such that has a contrite spirit. Do you know how you deal with bad situations because of bad decisions? You have brokenness before the God of the universe. The God of the universe then turns to you and he says, your problems become my problems because your faith is in me and my word and I will take care of your problems. Isn't that precious? There is not a father like that on the planet. There is not a God like that in the universe. There is no one more sensitive and tender and compassionate to where you live and breathe than the God of heaven. 
And if you have circumstances, maybe you caused them, maybe you didn't, I want you to know that he says, my, your problems are my problems because I love the broken and contrite in heart. The, the issue, the hinge, the pivotal point is will you be broken? There's a verse in Psalms that says this. Don't be like the, the horse or the mule. They'll never come unless you got a bridle or a bit in their mouth. In other words, I'd rather you come voluntarily without being dragged. I'd rather you come with a broken heart. That moves me. The child that rests confidently, their, their head on the chest of the Savior, finds a Savior who responds to them. Brokenness. So what do you do when you feel like you've failed? I think that's what we should do. Father, we thank you for this moment where we've been able to open up the word of God. We thank you that we've had a chance to see your pattern of how you've handled situations that are very similar to where we're at today. I want to thank you that you have a very sensitive spot. You, you, it's like the tender spot of heaven. You just love the brokenhearted. You just love those who turn to you and cling to your mercy and cling to your word and cling to everything about you and say, we can't fix it. We can't undo it. We have nowhere to turn. We turn to you. You are the one that made the promises to us. And we cry out to you in this place and you answer. Oh, Father, you, we, we offer ourselves to you in this way. There are many in this room that have problems and situations that are just bad. And we need you. We need, we need you to fix them. We need you to take our, our problems and make them your problems. This is the theme of everything about salvation. We ask you to do so. Father, we need brokenness. We need to be a one who sees ourselves in light of the word of God and, and responds in a humble way. We need this kind of contrition, Father. I need it. I want to be that little child that crawls up on the lap of heaven and buries my face in the bosom of my Savior. Jesus' name.